Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, Romans chapters 1 through 4 uh, really summed up the gospel in what we call a systematic way. In other words, Paul went through systematically, piece by piece, unpacking the gospel for us. The depth of our sin and the goodness of God in sending Jesus for that sin to die for us and to justify us or to make us right with God through faith in him. We pick up now in Romans chapter 5, and most agree that chapters 5 through 8 really unpack the benefits of what Paul systematically introduced in the first four chapters. So if chapters 1 through 4 are about justification, they're about the gospel and what it means to be made right with God, chapters 5 through 8 then sort of unpack what benefits that bring to us, that brings to us as believers. What, what good, good does it do in our lives? What good does it do for the Christian life to be justified by faith in Christ? Aside from eternal life, what does it mean for me here and right now? And today we're going to be talking about the peace of God. The peace of God. When I say that word peace, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe um, the stopping of a conflict the cessation of hostility. Maybe you think of the end of one of the wars in our history and the, the day that peace was achieved through a treaty or surrender. Maybe you just think, as a parent, we think this often, of peace as just quiet. <laughs> no one crying, no one whining, just that peace and quiet. Maybe you think of harmony between people where there was conflict or arguments. The biblical concept of peace means all those things, but also means wholeness. Coming together as a whole, things fitting together. And so you might wonder, how do we get to a therefore peace after wrath and anger and condemnation and the judgment that God owes on sin? How do we get from there to here where Paul says, therefore, we have peace? Well, that comes as we unpack chapter 3 through chapter 4 and how even though we are sinners, we have been justified, made right with God only through faith in Christ. And that it's not as if our sins didn't count, but that God counted them against Jesus, whom he crucified in our place, so that we might have his righteousness. How? Again, verse 1, by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace and we have access to God's grace. But Paul uses a peculiar word there in verse 2 about our access to grace, doesn't he? We have access to grace, not just that it's available to us, not just that it's there if we need it, if we want it. Look at what he says in verse 2. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or chapter 5 that we read earlier or 15 that we read earlier, that we have a standing in the grace of God, not merely as a past experience. 
As much as we rejoice in our original salvation experience, however that happened for you, that time when you realized you were a sinner and you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in faith, whenever that conversion moment happened, we move beyond that, don't we? And that wasn't our only experience of God's grace. That is the initial first experience of God's grace. We must have that experience of God's grace in conversion and being saved and coming to Christ. But Paul says we stand there now. We stand there still. That access we have to God by his grace is not just a one-time done and over experience. It is the first step. It is the last step. And it's every step in between. That's why Paul says it's from faith for faith. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. In which we live and stand every single moment in the presence of God. Tim Keller says, wherever we go in this world, as believers, wherever we go in this world, we are always in the heavenly throne room of God. And that goes for your circumstances. It goes for the good, the bad, the ugly, the suffering, the trials, the hardships, the good times, the down times. And everything in between, wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever your experience, whatever your circumstances, whatever your suffering, nothing can remove you now as a believer from that standing in the presence of God through faith in Christ. That is where you now stand and live every moment of every day in the throne room of God himself. And the mark of the believer in this is that we rejoice in this. Look at what he says at the end of verse 2. We stand there and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What cause is there to rejoice in this knowledge? What cause is there to rejoice in these blessings? Well, hope, as you heard Paul today talk about as one untimely born, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. Paul knew what he was. Paul knew what he used to be. Maybe here today, you remember who you used to be. You remember who you were before Jesus. Or maybe you've gotten so familiar with the story and with church and with the Christian life that you've forgotten who you used to be. You've forgotten who you were. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Is that your testimony today? I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners, and yet Christ's mercy and love and grace has overflowed for me in that he has saved me. Is that your hope? Is that your test? I know it's hot in here today, but you're going to have to get a little more lively. I'm a little worked up this morning, and if I'm up here worked up all by myself, I'm going to embarrass myself, and the pastors are going to have to come chain me down somewhere. Is this good news to you this morning? That you have peace with God through faith in Christ? Well, there it is. Praise the Lord. Calming down. (laughs) That you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you were and what you could be has been erased. 
because God's mercy has overflowed for you in Christ. Paul says, I know that mercy for myself. I know that grace for myself. And Paul says, if you know that grace and you know that mercy and you know this peace with God through faith in Christ, the end of verse 2, that is cause for you to rejoice. To rejoice, what does he say in verse 2? In hope of the glory of God. Now, we use that word hope a lot, and we often just link it to wishful thinking. I hope it's cooler than it has been in the sanctuary this morning. I hope it doesn't storm this afternoon, or I hope it does storm this afternoon. That's wishful thinking. I would like for that to happen, but it might not. That is not the biblical concept of hope, and it's not what Paul means here in the beginning of in the verse 2, beginning of verse 3. This hope... Biblical hope is not wishful thinking, but means a certain expectation or assurance. And in this case, Paul says in verse 2, we rejoice in a certain expectation of the glory of God. Now, as sinners, what should we expect from God? Wrath, condemnation, the judgment of God... That's not what Paul says. We do not expect those things anymore as believers. Now we live in expectation of the glory of God. Now, sometimes we read the Bible in such a way that we miss the language that's being used. We've forgotten how to read the text appropriately, haven't we? Back in chapter 3, verse 23, what did Paul say? All have sinned, you know it, and fall short of the glory of God. But now we come back at the beginning of chapter 5 and Paul says, although in our sin we have fallen short of the glory of God, now through faith in Christ we expect what? The glory of God. So we rejoice in salvation and the hope that awaits us forever. Let's not miss what Paul is saying here though. Look on in in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. You rejoice in our sufferings. It's interesting that Paul would talk about the rejoicing that we have in our salvation here and now in light of what is to come. But he also points us to rejoicing in our salvation even in the bad times. All of this traced and rooted back to faith in Christ. And I want to make that note this morning. Listen very carefully apart from faith in Christ. Listen, apart from faith in Christ, there is no access to the grace of God. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, there is no access to God's grace and you should not expect the glory of God. Apart from faith in Christ, you should still expect wrath judgment and condemnation for your sin because you have fallen short of the glory of God. It's only through faith in Christ, as Paul started in verse 1, it's only through faith in Christ that we're brought to peace with God and a standing in the grace of God. Our Christmas cards and our funeral epitaphs sometimes and things we say to each other are sometimes promises we can't make. When we talk about peace and joy and the peace of God and the joy of God. And we just, kind of, we just kind of promise those things to everyone as if they were automatic. As if a knowledge and experience of the peace and the joy of God was just part of what it means to be human. It's just there for everybody. We presume upon it. We pronounce it on anyone and everyone. The Bible says not so. There are stipulations. There's a condition here. 
And that condition is faith in Jesus Christ. Not your works, not your righteousness, not your religious deeds and observances, not your efforts, not your being a good woman or a good man, but faith in Christ. That's why Paul started the whole thing in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in Christ, then comes the peace with God. Then comes the hope in God. So I ask you this morning... Have you seriously, honestly reckoned with your sin? You might acknowledge this morning, yeah, I'm a sinner, what of it? Yeah, I'm a human, I make mistakes, what of it? But have you seriously reckoned with it in light of the wrath and the judgment and the verdict of God? In light of that, have you come to God for mercy? Have you come to God for mercy through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, saying, I have nothing, I need everything from you through your death, through your resurrection? Have you done that through faith in Christ? Have you received his work on your behalf by faith? And that's what Paul says brings justification. The only way you have a right standing with God is through faith in what Jesus has done. Only then, Paul says, can you know this peace And the certainty of glory. And that brings us to verses 3 through 5. The peace of certainty. Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. We talk about glory. We think of the certainty of glory. And we think of triumph and victory and ease and comfort. And that is coming for us one day when we all get to heaven. We love the songs, I'll fly away. We love to think about heaven and the victory and the triumph and the glory of that day then. But what about now? What do we think when life doesn't look like that now? It's easy to rejoice in salvation then, but what about rejoicing in salvation now, even in suffering and trials and hardships? And Paul says, those cannot detract from your hope. And those cannot take away from your peace if you know Jesus. In fact, Paul says, they can only serve, verse 4, to produce more hope. Suffering, trials, hardship in the life of believers only serves to strengthen that expectation of the glory of God. And I want to tell you this morning, Christians know this unique kind of assurance. Only Christians know this unique kind of assurance. Because when you're a believer... And through suffering and hardships and trials and bad times, all the props are knocked out from underneath. And all the supports that we've built for ourselves are gone. When you're a believer, even when all those things are gone, you ask yourself as a believer, what is left? And as a believer, you can say, there's always Jesus There's always the promises of God. There is my salvation. There is my hope. And no amount of trials or hardship or suffering can ever take away that. Even though everything else is removed from beneath me, there's always that foundation of the hope of the glory of God. But when you're an unbeliever, when you're an unbeliever and everything is taken away, And the supports are removed and the columns are knocked out and the foundation is removed. When you're an unbeliever, what are you left with? Despair. Hopelessness. You're lost. 
Because those sufferings and those trials and those hardships, they reveal what's really there underneath for you, don't they? Charles Spurgeon said one of the blessings of being a believer, when suffering and trials come, Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw my soul up against the rock of ages. That is the hope that believers have. That is the hope that only believers have. Only believers can know that kind of hope where we can kiss the waves that toss us to and fro because they can only throw us up against the rock of ages, our hope in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you know that kind of joy and that kind of certainty, this kind of certainty that Paul talks about, even in suffering. Does that suffering only further your hope in Jesus? Or does your suffering and your trials reveal that there's no foundation there at all? Or that it's something else that you've made up for yourself? Here's a a real test for your salvation. Here's a real way to examine if you really are in the faith. When those hard times come, what does it reveal that your foundation and your hope really is? Paul says for the believer... We rejoice even in suffering and trials because they can only serve to make us more hopeful in the glory of God. Verse 5 reveals to us this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hope does not put us to shame. This hope does not leave you wanting. This hope does not leave you hanging. It's what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not just, I'm not embarrassed of it, which is included there, but Paul means I've put everything on the gospel. It is all my hope, all my confidence, all my trust. And I know that on that day, when God's judgment judgment and wrath is revealed, I know on that day, The gospel will not leave me hanging, but it will bring me all the way home. That's what Paul means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he means the same thing here in verse 5. This hope will not leave us wanting. It is a certain expectation of the glory of God. Even when everything else is stripped away, this hope will not leave. Not only in future promise and hope of life eternal, but fuel for life right now. In all circumstances... We are rooted in this hope in an unchanging God, which will never leave us stranded. In verse 5, the second part really shows us the instrument of this. He says, through the Holy Spirit who has been poured out. Poured. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is not coming to us in drips and drops and, and trickles and streams. No, the Holy Spirit is being poured into us as a constant flowing stream. And trials and our sufferings are a test to show us where we really stand, on what we really stand, and if we truly have this Holy Spirit. Do you see that? When the trials come, when the suffering comes, where is your hope? Where is your peace? Do you have the Holy Spirit who's supposedly pouring all of this into your heart? 
But as believers in the middle of trials and suffering, whatever it is, we have reason to rejoice because we have certainty in the promises of God. We have peace with God through faith in Christ. And we know this because we have the inner witness, the overflowing witness of the Holy Spirit within us. And this doesn't make sense to unbelievers. It's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that we can have a peace that passes understanding. That's a verse we like to throw out there a lot without really thinking about what it means. What does it mean that it passes understanding? Well, it means it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because you're in so much suffering. It doesn't make sense because your family is in so much pain. It doesn't make sense because, according to anybody else, this is hopeless and you are lost and there's no comfort and there's no peace. But you still say, I have peace in Christ and his promises. That doesn't make any sense. That's a peace that passes understanding. And it comes only from the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Listen, wave after wave after wave of hardship might roll over you in this life. But it cannot deter the river and the stream of the Holy Spirit flowing within you. There might be currents, there might be rapids, there might be waterfalls, there might be all kinds of treacherous things on this journey... But it's still the same river of the Holy Spirit flowing within you if you have peace and justification through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 38. If anyone believes in me, he has rivers of life flowing from within him. And verse 39 tells us what that river of life is. He said this concerning the Holy Spirit. Do you know the peace that comes from that kind of certainty? That even in your trials and in your suffering, do you know that kind of peace by God's Spirit? That even when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you, your foundation is solid because it's in Christ by his Spirit. And I keep asking these questions, and you might think that I'm asking these questions as if I can know. That I keep asking these questions as if you can know. And the important point this morning is that you can know. You can know certainty. You can know peace. You can know justification. You can know salvation. You can know this kind of certainty and peace with God through faith in Christ, even here this morning. And that's our last point today, peace through Christ, verses 6 through 11. Paul begins in verse 6 with the word for. That's another transition Paul uses. It's a, a biblical transition that, that takes us somewhere. Now, it's a different transition than the word therefore. When Paul starts or anyone starts with therefore, it's pointing us backward to ask the question, what now? So in other words, when Paul says therefore, it's pointing us to what he's just said, and then it's asking the question, what now? Whereas the transition Four still points us backward, but it asks a different question. Not what now, but how. How did all this come to be? And look at what Paul says in verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You can know certainty 
in Christ. You can know peace with God through Christ. And how can I make these bold statements of certainty and knowledge and peace? Verse 6, because Christ died for the ungodly. It's what Paul said back in chapter 4, verse 5, that Christ justifies the ungodly. And how does he justify the ungodly? Because he has died for the ungodly. I love that little phrase in the middle of verse 6, at the right time. At the right time. When would have been the wrong time, Paul? That's not what Paul means. Not like God just chose the exact right time. It was the moment that God had chosen and predestined. According to chapter 1, verse 2, what did Paul say? That the prophets and the scriptures pointed to this gospel. What did he say in chapter 3, verse 21? That the law and the prophets bore witness to this gospel. What is Paul saying? All of that happened in the Old Testament. All of that happened in the Old Covenant to point us to this. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us by his son. At the right time, God sent Jesus according to all the prophets and according to all the law. God sent Christ. Even more remarkably here, it was in our weakness when we were sinful when we were ungodly when we were unrighteous when we deserved wrath when our verdict was guilty then Christ came to die for the ungodly what amazing undeserved grace and kindness now now Paul admits in verse 7 that we see this sometimes Sometimes one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would dare even die for a good person. Paul says, sure, people lay down their lives for other people. Most often this is someone we deem good, worthy of our life. Oftentimes a loved one or a family member. Paul says that might happen, but it's not the norm, and it's certainly not always. But even that is not the case here. These are not family members. These are not loved ones. These are not friends. These are not those who deserve anything from God. What does Paul say in verse 8? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you something this morning. The good news of the gospel is not that you were so great that God just had to have you. And you were so wonderful and so cuddly that God just wanted to have you up in heaven for himself. So he sent Jesus because you're so wonderful. No, while you were still a sinner, an enemy of God, hostile to God, deserving of God's wrath, at that time, God still sent Jesus in his love to die for you. And it wasn't begrudging. Sometimes we think about the wrath and the judgment and the holiness of God and hell and all that we rightly deserve from God. And so we might think that God sends Jesus sort of hesitantly. That there's a little bit of a, a grinding of God's teeth when he sends Jesus because he, just, he doesn't know how all this is going to work out. You do deserve hell after all. And so he sends Jesus and he's kind of like, Ew. no, God shows his love for us in the sending of his son. And so Paul is answering this question How can I know God's promises are true? How can I know justification with God? How can I have the fullness of God's Spirit? How can I have peace with Him 
Listen, because God has proven his amazing love through sending Jesus for you. Listen, you might say this morning, well, I don't deserve that. I I can't live up to that. There's no way I could ever earn that or, or get that for myself. I can't do that. Listen, God knows. God knows you can't earn it. God knows you can't live up to it. God knows you're not worthy of it. And he sent Jesus anyway. Because he did not send Jesus as a reward for your righteousness. He sent Jesus as a gift of grace into your sinfulness. He sent Jesus because. Can you wrap your mind around this? Because you are a sinner. That's why he sent Jesus. Even then. Even then. Jesus died for you. And Paul says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now there's a word we use a lot in church, isn't it? Saved. I got saved. You got saved. Are you saved? I've been saved. I was saved when I was four. I was saved when I was four. We throw that word around a lot. We don't oftentimes think about what it actually means to be rescued, to be delivered And I would say, well, what are we saved? What are we rescued? What are we delivered from? And we might all say hell. We might all say sin, death, Satan. Now, we certainly have been saved and delivered from all those things. And that's a wonderful promise of the gospel. But I want you to see what Paul says in verse 9. Just look at the text with me. Verse 9, where do you see Satan? Where do you see death, hell, sin? I don't see it. What are we saved from, according to Paul in verse 9? We are saved from the wrath of God. We ask, what are we saved from? It might shock you this morning to know that Jesus came first and foremost to save you from God. He came to save you from the wrath of God of God that you rightly deserved because of your sin. Sure, that means deliverance from hell. It means salvation from Satan. It means salvation from death. All those things are included. Forgiveness of sin, justification, peace with God. It's all included because it solved your first problem. And that was your problem with God because of your sin. The gospel is the good news of a God who saves us from himself by himself and for himself so that he can bring all glory to himself. That is the gospel. That first and foremost, God saves you from his own wrath. In fact, if you've noticed so far in Romans, there's been really no mention of Satan or demons or hell or death in that sense because they're not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem between you and God is not all those things. It's in your own heart and it's your sin that makes God enemy number one in your heart and it makes you enemy number one according to his judgment. And he would have every right to wipe you out right now. In one of the commentaries I was reading, he told the story of texting back and forth with one of his friends. And his friend texted him the next morning. And the first thing his friend texted him was, we should be in hell, bro. And the guy thought, well, that's an odd text to wake up on a you know, Monday morning. We should be in hell. But it's the truth. 
And every morning you wake up and breathe and live in the peace of God and the relationship with Jesus Christ, with the hope of heaven, you should remember, I should be in hell right now. Except God saved you by himself, from himself. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And verse 10 tells us because of this, If we were still enemies when Christ came, if we were still enemies when God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That word reconciled is another change in status. Where we were enemies, where we were hostile, where there was conflict, there has been a bringing together. And it happened through the blood of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 13, that we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is reconciliation. That is peace. That is cessation of conflict. That is what it means to have peace with God. That we who were once enemies have been brought near to each other through the blood of his son, Jesus. But Paul presents us here in verse 10 with an escalation in his argument. He's saying, if we have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus, we shall be reconciled and have life through the life of Jesus. Do you see what Paul's saying? In the death of Jesus and in the shedding of Jesus' blood for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins and what that cost him, the hardest part has already been done. And what's left is automatic. If he has already saved you by his death, he will certainly now save you by his life. In other words, he died for you. The rest is no problem. There's no need to worry. Salvation is done. Because any prospect and any expectation of the wrath and the judgment of God, if you are in Christ, any expectation and prospect of the judgment of God is gone forever. Completely and absolutely and eternally removed. There is nothing left. One, through the blood of Jesus and atoning for your sins. But what does Paul say at the end of verse 10? In the life of Jesus. What does he mean? The resurrection? Maybe. We have life in him, absolutely. I think it points us to his resurrection and his ascension. And that he now stands in the presence of God and prays for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, who can condemn us? Nobody, nobody can condemn us because Christ died. He rose again. He ascended. And he is interceding for us right now. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I might add a little extra chorus onto that hymn one day and said, it is enough that Jesus died. It is enough that Jesus rose. It is enough that Jesus ascended and that he prays for me. He intercedes for me and you right now at the throne of God. And that's why Paul says, if he died for you, he now lives for you. If he shed his blood for you, he is now interceding for you so that your salvation is as good as done. And Tim Keller said once again, the God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. I want to ask you this morning, do you dread the judgment and the wrath of God? 
This morning, does the judgment and the wrath of God hang over you like an axe on a pendulum just waiting to cut? I want you to know the good news this morning. Listen, if you're here under the wrath and condemnation of God because you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you've not repented of your sins, you're not following Jesus, and that wrath hangs over you like that axe. Listen, that judgment and that wrath that you deserve has been dealt with in Jesus. And so if you are in Jesus, you have already passed from death to life. There's no judgment or death left for you, only life according to God's spirit. The question is, are you in Christ? And then the question would be, well, how do I get into Christ? And I hope you know the answer by now, by faith in Christ. Are you saved from the wrath to come? Is it peace between you and God? Paul says it's not just a then and there thing. One day in heaven, verse 11, he says more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's not just there and then. It's right here and right now for those who have already received reconciliation through faith in Christ. Believer, you were far from God. Christian, you were at war with God. You were an enemy of God. And can you think of any other story or conflict or war in history that ended like this? Where the king and the judge bears the war in himself who suffers condemnation in himself, shedding his own blood, listen, so that the enemy doesn't just go free, but that the enemy is brought into the kingdom as family, sons, and daughters. Do you know that peace and that joy and that certainty through faith in Christ? And I want to tell you this morning, if you don't, you can find it here today at the foot of the cross. You can find it here today at Calvary in this Savior who died for your sins. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. There is certainty and peace when everything else is crumbling. There is certainty and peace even in the midst of your suffering and trials. There is suffering and peace in the person and power of God's Holy Spirit. There is certainty and peace in peace with God through faith. In Christ. Today we're going to sing. I'm going to sing with you as a response of worship to the Lord. I don't want you to think that just because I stand and sing with you that there's no invitation. The invitation is extended. After we sing and at the conclusion of this service, I will be here. I'll be present. And if the Lord is convicting you, that just means you feel that drawing You know you're a sinner and you know you got to do something about it. If you know that this morning through the preaching of the gospel, I want you to come find me and talk to me after the service right here. And we'll begin a conversation that we can finish later. But I want to tell you what it means to follow Jesus today. If you're a believer, as we sing this song, let this song be a song of worship and testimony for what God through Christ has done for you. And the assurance and the peace that you know as a believer by the power of that river of the Holy Spirit flowing within you. Let's sing it with energy and power and worship through what God has done for us at Calvary. Our God and our Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for the cross.
We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who speaks by your word. And God, we know that he has spoken here today. Bring sinners to salvation. Bring unbelievers to a knowledge of their sin and a knowledge of their Savior. And help us who know Jesus to rejoice in him and to worship him for that mighty gulf that he spanned on the cross. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we rejoice in the cross of Christ together? Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.